What is up, Vermont Edition podcast listener? This is Elodie Reed, digital producer for VPR. Just to let you know, this podcast has been edited for brevity and clarity. Enjoy. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Bob Kinzel. Next week, lawmakers will be back in a special veto session in an effort to override three of Governor Phil Scott's vetoes. It takes a two-thirds vote of members who are present to succeed. Democratic leaders are expressing optimism that they'll be able to gather the votes to overturn these vetoes. Well, what are these issues all about, and why have they created this friction between the executive and legislative branches of government? And could other issues emerge for consideration once the veto session starts? Well, today in the program, we've got a reporter's roundtable to look at these and other issues. Two people have been covering these issues very closely with us. VPR's Pete Hirschfeld. Pete, great to have you here. Good to be with you as always, Bob. And we're going to be joined momentarily by Xander Landon of VT Digger and get his thoughts on what's going on as well. So, Pete, let's start off with the Montpelier and Winooski charter changes. These were both vetoed by the governor. Uh, both In both cases, uh, non-citizens were allowed to vote in local elections. So what is this all about? Yeah, this is uh, the result of charter changes that were approved in both Montpelier and Winooski. I think Montpelier approved this charter change all the way back in 2018. It's been working its way through the legislature ever since. But the idea in these communities was, look, we've got a lot of uh, non-U.S. citizens who live in our community. They're here on either a green card or a work visa. They have jobs, they're paying taxes, their kids are going to our schools, they're participating in our local communities, and yet we have an electoral framework that uh, doesn't give them an opportunity to weigh in in local elections. Uh, Residents of these communities petitioned to uh, have a charter change vote that would change that, um, that would allow these folks to vote in local elections. We should be clear, they wouldn't be able to vote on federal races. They wouldn't be able to vote on the governor, for instance, but they would be able to vote on school budgets. They'd be able to vote on municipal budgets. They'd be able to vote on who they want to represent them on school boards. And they uh, passed overwhelmingly in both communities and... uh, one of the quirks of, of government in Vermont is that in order for municipalities to get their charter changes effectuated, they need approval from the legislature and the governor. And that's why we find ourselves having this uh, conversation we do now, BK. You know, it's interesting. I don't think a lot of people know that because the legislature created towns in Vermont, that the legislature retains authority over any charge changes that may want to be enacted at the local level. You know, we often talk about local control in Vermont, but here's an example. Well, a municipality wants to do something. Well, if it involves a charter change, they've got to go to the state house for approval. Well, and you see this play out in all sorts of interesting ways in Vermont. Uh, you don't have to look far back. Uh, Act 46, for example, um, this is a phenomenon that affects not only towns and cities, but any municipality, including fire districts and school districts. And so when the legislature passed this law mandating consolidation of school districts, um, that was challenged in court. And what the judge had to say in those cases was that, look, 
Um, the way our government works is that the legislature has really enormous control over local governments, whatever form they happen to take in Vermont. And uh, the legislature can, uh, if it wants to in some cases, actually disband local municipalities. So we talked about the legislature having oversight over this. Why did the governor veto these bills? What the governor said is, look, this is a big policy decision to make. If we are going to allow non-U.S. citizens to vote, uh, it's a dramatic departure from existing law. And and if we're going to go down that road, A, he wants to take some more time to think about it, wants to uh, ask all the questions that he thinks need to be asked. Um, and and B, and, and more crucially perhaps, Governor Phil Scott thinks that if we're going to do this, we need to do this as a state, not municipality by municipality. So uh, he said, I can't let uh, these two jurisdictions go it alone on this. And uh, that's why he vetoed it and sent it back to the legislature. In doing that, did he uh, express uh, an opinion as to whether or not this would be good statewide policy? Uh, you know, he really didn't weigh in terribly heavily in that on his veto message and, and has expressed some reservations um, about the concept in uh, answers to reporters' questions about this over the months. Um, but but it's sort of signaled that th- this is something he'd be willing to consider, but that he's certainly not there yet. Um, and again, doesn't want this to be a, a one-off town-by-town policy that, that if we're going to do this as a state, we should do it uh, as a whole. And joining us now is Xander Landon of VT Digger. Xander, great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me, Bob. So, Xander, as you look at these two charter changes, Montpelier and Winooski, do you get the impression from legislative leaders that they think they have the votes to override these vetoes? I think that they do. And Senate Leader Becca Ballant told me as much uh, for the Senate, at least, that the votes are there uh, for all three of the bills that the governor has vetoed, uh, including the two charter changes. The House um, is going to be a little bit of a closer vote. Uh, I believe that on the Winooski uh, vote, there were 99 votes in favor of that. There are 100 are needed to survive uh, or to, to basically override the veto pen. You need a two-thirds majority vote. So that that, that one, the Winooski charter, is going to be a little bit tougher. Uh, the Montpelier charter change, I believe, had a, I believe had 103 votes. So that one um, is probably a safer bet. But in general... Um, Democratic leaders have not really brought forward, uh, you know, veto override votes unless they're pretty confident that they have the support or that they're going to be able to muster the support to override a veto. So the fact that we're seeing votes on this on these bills pretty immediately uh, in an attempt to enact them into law after the vetoes, opposed to waiting until January to deal with the problem, is probably a sign that the Democratic leaders feel pretty confident about their chances here. Well, Xander, some of the Republican leaders were saying, what's the rush? Why not wait until January? What do the Democrats say to that? Well, they say that, you know, these are these are pieces of legislation that have been in the works for a long time. Uh, These charter changes have been uh, discussed, uh, I believe, since at least 2019, got delayed partially because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, The other bill um, that's related to sort of juvenile criminal records that got vetoed by the governor has also been in discussion for a while. 
so they say, you know, these are things that we want to, you know, we, we were working to wrap up this year. We want to get them done. We don't want to have to have them sort of hanging out there in January when we're going to be looking to address new issues. And on the issues of the charter changes, there's pretty strong belief that they want to try to uh, make those, uh, you know, the expanded voting rights um, law so that uh, towns and cities, uh, Winooski and Montpelier, can start preparing and implementing them uh, as soon as possible. So I think on those, on those two, on the charter changes in particular, there's a sense of urgency among Democrats. Sandra, as you look at the votes in the House and the Senate over both of the charter change issues, do these votes tend to be partisan votes? Um, yeah, certainly with the charter changes, you have a lot of Republican opposition, um, but it's extended a little bit beyond that as well. Um, and uh, because there are only 46 um, Republicans in, in the state house or in the, in the House at this point. Um, yeah, so Republicans are generally opposed to these. And Democrats are generally uh, in favor. Um, but, uh, you know, at this point, I think the Democratic leaders are trying to, in the House, are trying to get as many, um, you know, sort of as, as much support from independents and progressives as possible. Uh, and maybe some Republican support as well, if possible. Though that is, in, in, the, in, a, in a veto override scenario, much harder to do because historically we've seen the Republican Party um, usually stick with the governor uh, in in cases where uh, there's an attempt to override his veto. And we should mention the party makeup in the House, as you touched upon, Xander. We have 92 Democrats, 46 Republicans, seven progressives, and five independents. Pete, it's interesting, you know, it's members present. It's two-thirds of members present. So it's not two-thirds of 150 necessarily. Now, it's uh, sometimes circumstances come up and some members can't make it back for a, a veto session. This is going to be a remote session, I believe. Uh, so the number that the uh, people need to override the governor's veto it's a little uncertain at this time. Yeah. Uh, as you say, Bob, the, the magic number is going to be dependent on the number of people who are actually participating in that vote. Now, uh, it's hard to envision uh, a scenario that would prevent a lawmaker from logging on to Zoom to participate in, in uh, such an important roll call. Uh, but but to your point, um, they don't necessarily need to get to 100 in the House or or, or 20 in the Senate um, if the denominator is not the uh, the full bodies. There's a third be uh, veto bill, Xander. Uh, it is something that the governor feels very strongly about. Obviously, it involves the confidentiality of juveniles who have been charged with serious crimes. So what's this bill all about? Yeah, so this was this was an effort in some ways, a continued effort as Democrats are looking at criminal justice reform, and we've seen a variety of changes, you know, intended to keep, uh, you know, more uh, Vermonters who commit crimes out of prison over the years and lower the prison population. This is sort of in that vein. And the, the attempt here is to try to make it um, a little bit harder for records that, um, you know, related to alleged crimes or crimes committed by people when they're young from staying out in the public record 
for years on end, which can lead to uh, make things difficult for people when they get older. Uh, you know, namely, you know, when people are trying to seek a job and they have uh, something in the public record from when they were 18 years old related to a crime that may make that difficult. So this was an effort to sort of um, help keep those records uh, out of the public um, for cases. I think it's between the ages 16 and 20 is the full span. And this isn't for all crimes. This is for um, crimes outside of the, the big 12, as, as it's called, which, you know, those are the sort of the most serious crimes, uh, sexual assault, aggravated assault, murder. Those records would still be public uh, for, for use um, under this legislation. It's other crimes such as DUI, uh, accidents, uh, theft, uh, those sort of crimes would not be um, publicly, information about those would not be publicly available. And the governor, as you said, expressed concerns about um, extending these protections um, for juveniles who commit crimes um, when there aren't certain other um, services and um, housing and other, other sort of elements aimed at sort of helping uh, rehabilitate uh, offenders, um, concerned about extending a protection um, when there aren't other systems in place for those offenders at this time. So it sounds like he's not totally closed off to the idea of doing this, of reforming the public records um, around, um, you know, youthful offenders, but he wants to see bigger sort of changes, systemic changes in place to reduce crime among young adults before this change is made. So, Xander, just to make sure that I understand current law, under current law, people who are between the ages of 16 and 20, their information is released for whatever crimes they're being charged with. Do I That's have that right. right? That's right, yeah. Otherwise, if you're under that um, age, uh, likely your, your, your case information is going to be referred to family court where it's not public. But if you're 16 years old, 17 years old, and you get into a DUI-related crash, at this point in time, that information is publicly available, the information about your arrest, court proceedings, et cetera. And uh, it's reported on often in the press and, um, you know, available on police blotters, et cetera. And that is what, the, you know, Democrats are looking at and saying, as we reform the criminal justice system, uh, this should be part of the reform. We should be keeping these records private for young offenders. So, Pete, as supporters of this bill see it as part of probably a larger criminal justice reform package. But looking at this just specifically, it uh, is there a feeling, as Xander pointed out, that Maybe people, when they're young, make mistakes and it shouldn't stay with them for the rest of their lives? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that was the purpose of this legislation that was passed two years ago, which raised the age uh, at which somebody is considered a juvenile offender to 20 years old. I believe it's still 19 right now. I believe next year we go up to 20. It was a phased-in um, provision of that law. Uh, but... Those cases, by default, unless they're the Big 12 that Xander pointed out, um, will be referred to a different court than the court that one would go to if they were charged as adults. And in that court, all proceedings are held in confidence. We don't have access to the records. We don't have access to the names. We can't go witness the hearings. 
And the reason that lawmakers did that is because they don't want youthful indiscretions marring opportunity um, for decades to come for young folks. And they said if we allow their names to be publicized in the news um, at the point at which they commit the offenses, then it really undermines everything else we're trying to do by referring them into this different uh, criminal justice framework. And, and and that was the thinking behind it. Um, you know, there was some pushback, not only from the governor, we should note, um, our own industry, the news media, uh, didn't like this bill either. Um, we are uh, not big fans of secrets uh, as reporters and journalists. And um, the Vermont Press Association, the Broadcasters Association, I believe, both petitioned the governor to veto this, saying that, um, you know, if there's a serious car crash on Vermont roadways that uh, results in serious injuries or loss of life, then the public has a right to know the individuals that were involved in that. Um, and they say that that public interest supersedes the goals um, and, and intent behind behind the legislation that uh, that, that creates uh, a higher age uh, banned for, for juvenile offenders and also would, would shield the public from knowing who was involved in these things. Today in the program, we're looking at some of the vetoes that will come up in a veto session next week at the legislature. Your thoughts, 1-800-639-2211. That's 1-800-639-2211. Let's talk to Ross in Hardwick. Hey, Ross, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my uh, concern is that uh, um, I, I do uh, hope the legislature will not override the governor's veto on, on this bill um, to raise the age. <clears throat> I mean, people are eligible to vote, <coughs> excuse me, when they're 18. And um, so, you know, that's all well and good. Um, I think when people come in conflict with the law, um, well, that's too bad, but that's kind of part of life, and um, we all need to uh, learn to be accountable, accept responsibility for our behavior, and hopefully when the behavior is aberrant, we uh, uh, move beyond that and, and grow from those mistakes. And um, I, I think that, um, for instance, that uh, the example Peaches gave, somebody uh, is involved in an accident. Well, what if somebody's just a perpetual speeder, uh, flaunts uh, driving laws, um, and gets tickets all the time? Well, um, maybe the community, any community, uh, would want to know that. Um, other behavior that's uh, not within the big eight or whatever it was you called about the, um, the really – heinous crimes, um, they're still out there. They're part of the fabric in a community, and the community has a right to know uh, who who is there. We're spending our tax dollars for the police departments, the court systems, and um, uh, those uh, um, where they come in conflict, the, the public has a right to know about uh, uh, those activities. And, and uh, um, again, it's part of life. It's part of growing. It's part of assuming, uh, recognizing that one is re accountable and, and responsible for their behavior, ta taking uh, responsibility for that. 
Ross, this is Pete. I can't, I can't help but jump in and ask you a question because this is something I've been thinking a lot about as a reporter. Do you think there's any onus on, on us as reporters to exercise more discretion or thought as to when we decide to use that public information or not? Well, I mean, I think it, it needs to uh, be based on the public's right to know. Does the public have the right to know the truth about what's going on in their communities? Um, are are um, um, people within an age band exempt from um, having their behavior known to the public? And, um, you know, the, we have a, a judicial system we have that includes law enforcement. And, again, our tax dollars are paying for that. So on the one hand, are we meant to pay for that but not know about it? Uh, I... Sure, the press always has to uh, um, be cognizant of, of its responsibilities. Um, as a former member of the press myself, I'm very acutely aware of that and was when I worked. But uh, um, that doesn't negate the uh, fact that uh, we live in a community. It's our tax dollars at work. We have a right to know how how. Um, our communities work and how our money's being spent. Ross, thanks very much for your comments. We really appreciate them. Let's turn to Kyle in Newport. Hey, Kyle, welcome to the program. Hi, Kyle, are you there? Well, we're going to see if we can get Kyle back with a few technical problems. Xander, um, what's the outlook for overriding this veto? So uh, I think Democrats, once again, sound confident that they're going to be able to to override. Uh, It's a little less clear if we're looking at the numbers. Um, I wasn't there to witness the Senate's vote on this, but uh, it certainly passed. But there's no breakout of the votes, who voted for and who voted against. Uh, The House... uh, the, the day that, that this was the vote was taken on this bill in the House, there were a lot of people absent. <laughs> so uh, the breakout is also a little bit skewed and hard to decipher. Uh, I think 88 voted in favor and 32 voted against. Uh, but like I said, not everyone was there that day. A significant number of absences. So it's hard to say for sure how close the vote is going to be on this. But like I said before, the fact that they are swiftly bringing this up for a vote in the first place uh, in my view, signals that they're confident that they're going to be able to do this. Uh, but we've seen we've seen override attempts fail in the past. Most recently, in 2020, the beginning of last year, right before the pandemic hit, there was an attempt to override the governor's veto of paid family leave, a paid family leave program, uh, which he had previously vetoed another paid leave bill before. The vote was extremely close in the House. It was 99 votes in favor. I uh, forget the exact number against, but they were one short of that threshold that they needed to successfully override. I think that they thought that they had it, but there was one holdout in the end, and uh, that's that's what did it. So these votes are close, and they're also not all that common. Um, there haven't been all that many override successful override votes um, in general in the last 20 years or so. I forget the exact number, but um, if, you know if they could pull off three override votes, that would be uh, quite um, quite a lot in one year, certainly. 
You know, Pete, as you were discussing with Ross on the phone, this is a fascinating issue because it's sort of a balance between, on one hand, as Ross mentioned, uh, the public's right to know what is going on in their communities. And you've got that sort of countered by uh, the thought of, well, maybe when people are younger and under the age of 20, they do stupid things. And the question is, should those things stay with them for the rest of their lives and influence uh, their careers? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a really difficult dilemma in a lot of respects. For me, at least. Maybe it's cut and dry for a lot of other people. Um, the right to know is the right to know. Um, There are consequences to the things that we as reporters and editors and news organizations decide to put in our papers uh, or our online uh, articles or the stories that you hear on Vermont Public Radio. Um, And I think it it really is worth us um, as news professionals considering what those consequences are um, and weighing the potential downside risk to members of our community. against the public's right to know. There are all sorts of instances across state government where we don't have insights into things that are happening. Um, Personnel matters are are something that jump out to me um, because there are privacy interests that we want to protect as well, Um, you know. uh, So I don't know. It's just something I wrestle with. And um, I think it's a, a interesting conversation for newsrooms to have. Um, and I can uh, see it from, from all sides. Let's turn to Rick, who's calling from Stowe. Hi, Rick. Welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. My, my question has to do with the expungement laws. And I was just wondering, as someone who's benefited from the expungement laws, I think thanks to Senator Benning, uh, when I was young, I had an offense at the age of 17. And uh, several years later, I was able to have my record expunged and sealed. So I'm just wondering how that fits into the discussion in terms of that uh, and the raising the age of uh, of privacy. Xander, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, in recent years, we've seen a lot of, of expungement uh, efforts, uh, namely um, around drug laws in particular. Uh, last year, basically all minor uh, marijuana uh, drug records uh, were automatically expunged, which is something that um, was uh, a major win for the folks that have been advocating for this, the fact that this was something that doesn't, you don't have to apply through the court system. It just happens automatically. Um, and uh, that was part of the efforts to, um, to you know, legalize marijuana in the state, which were successful last year. Um, there's been work to further expand um, expungement this year. Um, there's, uh, I think, a few offenses uh, were added to the list of those that are expungible uh, this year. And there is a study that's approved to look at further expungement. Uh, so this is clearly something that has gained a lot of traction, bipartisan traction, um, in the legislature in recent years. And, and just to, to be totally clear, when somebody's records are expunged, it, it is as if those records never existed. They are wiped clean. Um, even a court or prosecutor can't access expunged records. Um, So uh, any paper trail that would give anybody uh, knowledge of the fact that that pre-existing crime for which somebody was convicted of existed would no longer exist. So, Rick, are you still there? 
Rick, would you yep. say that uh, having these records expunged has really made a big difference in your life? Uh, it's made a huge difference. I've gone on to be pretty successful in my career in Vermont and somewhat of a public figure. And I think having had that, uh, not having not been able to have my record expunged and having that um, sort of hang over me for decades to come, it would, would have really been a serious impediment in my career. So I do think there's really real value in this uh, in this discussion, in this law. And I understand that the, uh, the rights of uh, the press and people, the public to know um, – crimes committed but you know it's 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 really you know youthful indiscretions happen far more than we think and and having that uh hang over you for the rest of your life is is extremely damaging rick we really appreciate your phone call today and giving us some personal experience with this issue let's talk to tim in waterville hi tim welcome to the program gentlemen how are you doing great um i am First of all, I agree with everything that Rick and Stowe had said. Um, I'm a criminal justice advocate, and I think that the current bill um, should – I don't agree with the legislature that the age should only be 20. It should actually be 21 because what happens is if you start to put people at a younger age into, quote, the system – you're going to set them up for failure in their future. So I, I've been following this issue pretty closely. And by the way, I think the bill should be expanded to include sexual assault, uh, murder, those sorts of things, because if people make a youthful indiscretion, to use the previous caller's words, then you just you don't give them any opportunities to to fly when they're older. And by the way, the current uh, sex offender registry is a bloated and ineffective system. And if you start adding juveniles to that, you're just going to make it more bloated and more ineffective. So, Tim, I want to make sure that I understand what you're saying. Uh, that you think that the confidentiality should be expanded, does that mean that a 18-year-old who commits murder, that that should not be made public? Um, I, I don't think that it should be made public because you're, you're putting a person who's potentially created a crime that is pretty significant into a position where they're always going to be living with that that history. Today we've got two reporters talking about next week's veto session with us, Xander Landon of VT Dicker and VPR's Pete Hirschfeld. The three vetoes, as we've been discussing today, two of them involve charter changes in Montpelier and Winooski to allow non-citizens to vote in local elections, and one that also deals with confidentiality for people under the age of 20 who commit serious crimes and not having that reported. Pete, uh, legally, a veto session is really a continuation of the ongoing session that was going on. So bills that were on consideration uh, or perhaps on the calendar 
could come up for a vote. And one of those is a housing bill that House Republicans blocked on the last day of the session. It needed a suspension of rules in order to be sent back over to the Senate. And they didn't go along with that. So it was sort of stopped in its tracks. But now we see it on the action calendar. What is this bill all about? So I'm going to start uh, by telling you a couple parts of the bill that everybody does agree on, right, that uh, has has tripartisan support in Montpelier. Um, One of those provisions uh, is $5 million for a program that's intended to to beef up affordable housing stock by giving $30,000 grants, grants of up to $30,000, to landlords that have rental units that just aren't fit for habitation right now. Um, Maybe there's electrical or plumbing or other issues they don't have the funds to invest, um, and this is a program that would give them the money they need to get these units rentable and available to the public. Um, and one thought is that this could be especially useful for finding housing for people that are experiencing homelessness or maybe on the verge of experiencing homelessness. There's another provision that creates a, a revolving loan fund um, for first-time home buyers. Uh, they would be eligible for 0% loans of up to $50,000, um, again, designed to get folks into home ownership and a housing market that is really not very favorable right now for low and even moderate income residents in Vermont. Um, there's another provision, though, uh, that, and this is where the controversy comes in. Democrats want to create something called a rental registry, and um, a lot of lawmakers are frustrated by the fact that they don't have a very good read on the rental landscape in Vermont, especially in certain areas of the state. And they want to create a registry that would require landlords to register all the units that they have in a central database. Um, It would also require them to pay, I think, $35 a unit. Xander can correct me later if I'm wrong. And that money would be used to stand up uh, health and safety enforcement apparatus so that if people are living in substandard conditions, there's actually an enforcement agency that can look into that for them. Um, That's the provision that Republicans did not like. They say it adds time, cost, headaches to maintaining rental units, um, and they suggested that this is going to discourage prospective landlords from getting into the rental game um, at precisely the time when the need for affordable housing is more acute than ever. So, Xander, are the Democrats, as Pete mentioned, elements of this bill that everybody seems to support, but the registry seems to be uh, an issue of contention. Uh, Are the Republicans feeling that uh, this is an overreach to have a state registry and that somehow it's uh, the state getting involved in, in local regulations? Yeah, and I think part of that is because there's no other state at this point that has a registry like this. There's no other similar uh, system where landlords have to sort of register and pay to, to, to be part of this. And Republicans are concerned about that dissuading, as Pete said, um, folks from coming on and wanting to bring more housing stock onto the market. And this is a time where you have uh, lots of need for housing. There's a tight housing market. The um, There's an effort to house the homeless community at a time when the program that's been housing the, uh, the homeless residents of the state in motels and hotels is starting to go offline, and there's a real need for affordable housing. Um, but Democrats argue that that's precisely why this bill is needed. It's needed because it offers the funding that, that Pete described related to bringing more housing stock online by uh, rehabilitating it, giving money for landlords to do that, by helping uh, more people afford to buy homes. And they also say that there's a need for regulations 
about around housing and around the rental market. And that's part there. There, there have been some studies in recent years. I think there was one last year showing that about 7,000 units uh, in the state, uh, rental units lacked adequate facilities, um, according to that study. And uh, there's been lots of discussion over the years about, you know, how housing, the rental housing market is really, and rental housing and, you know, code, code enforcement is really regulated at the local level. And questions about, you know, to what extent is that uh, the best way to be doing this? Should this be done at the state level? And should there be more resources dedicated? And the Democrats think that there should be. But yes, the Republican concern is that this is not good for the housing market. It's more regulation at a time when it's not needed. Xander, we've been talking about the issues that the governors vetoed and the legislative effort to override those vetoes next week. Do we know how the governor feels about this bill? I'm not sure. I mean, there's certainly a lot in there that, that he will support, that he would support, namely the, the programs to refurbish housing, uh, the program uh, to help more people buy homes. There was also um, uh, a provision in this bill that would have made it slightly easier for landlords to evict tenants uh, during this moratorium on housing eviction that we've had during the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's been sort of agreement on both sides of the aisle that maybe in some cases it's been too hard to evict certain tenants that haven't been paying rent or haven't been taking advantage of certain programs that would help them pay rent at this time. So that's a provision that maybe maybe would have gotten the governor's support, but um, is a little bit dated now given that the eviction moratorium is being lifted. But there's certainly things in, in, in the bill that the governor, I think, would, would be likely to support. The question is whether he supports this, this wider regulation of the housing market. And um, I think, you know, certainly the members of his party uh, by and large, do not support. And that's an indication that it's something he's going to be thinking long and hard about, probably, when this bill gets to his desk. Let's go back to our callers and talk to Mark, who's calling from Fletcher. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the program. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm a longtime listener and uh, a retired educator, and I totally agree with uh consideration on um, uh, especially useful uh, uh, crimes that may have been committed in uh, ignorance sometimes and uh, but uh, it raised another question that uh, has not been addressed as we at any level on this program or any other program and the public's right to know. I keep hearing that term a lot. The public's right to know. And the biggest uh, problem in Vermont governance throughout the state is local civic uh, process for civic uh, rule, which is usually select boards and um, Robert's Rules of Order and uh, variations and such, and uh, how Australian ballots have uh, expanded diversity in voting, but are frowned upon by the select boards themselves, and the fact that library boards, uh, other uh, boards throughout the communities, the 
process of Robert's rules of law, whatever they're using, has been totally uh, abdicated from its original intent and has been um, uh, taken over by by the select boards or whatever board it mm -hmm. is. And you're ending up with minority rules throughout the state and no transparency, poor records, and no accountability for the decisions that people need to know because they cannot challenge these people in a public forum without that information. And it's rampant. Mark, you, you raised some very important points. I think it, it could be the subject of uh, an entire program, actually, Mark, uh, and something we could think about coming up in the summer because uh, there are a lot of important transparency issues that you're raising. So thank you very much for doing that. Let's turn right now to uh, Mike Donahue, who is the head of the Vermont Press Association. Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Uh, uh, I, I know you time's running short. I, I thought you might at least address a couple of the issues uh, that um, you hadn't touched on yet, uh, but also wanted to touch a little bit on S-107. Uh, first of all, the cost of this special session, uh, it's, uh, we've been told it's $50,000 a day uh, when a lot of these things, or all of them, could actually wait till January. So I assume you'll address that at some point. Uh, I'd also be interested in hearing Xander and Pete's uh, thoughts on the fact that, you know, this is really when the arm twisting happens in the parties that you have to vote by party and not your conscience. Uh, I mean, it's, everybody's lining up by party instead of what really is best for Vermonters. And I'd just be interested to hear what they have to say. But uh, a couple of corrections. Uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, yes, this is up to age 20 where people would not be held publicly accountable. I mean, obviously, uh, for their crimes, they, you know, they're old enough to vote. They're old enough to serve in the military. They're old enough to marry, old enough to have kids, but yet they're not old enough to be held accountable. And that's why the Vermont Press Association, the Vermont Association of Broadcasters and others, are sort of like, let's have some accountability here. And I think one of the comments that was made uh, during some of this is, you know, shouldn't parents know if their child, uh, one of their classmates, has been arrested for DWI or excessive speeding so that the parent can make a decision as to whether their child should, in fact, be able to ride with that person. And as a matter of fact, there was testimony uh, in a joint session a couple weeks ago about how this one youthful offender, and these, these really are youthful offenders. They're not juveniles, just for the record. They're youthful offenders up to age 20. That one person, you know, went to juvenile court, and he's already onto his third DWI. So obviously, whatever treatment they're getting or whatever punishment they got in juvenile court isn't working because he got arrested the first time, didn't work. He got arrested a second time for DWI. Now he's on to his third DWI, which in adult court would be a felony. But this Right. Now, Mike, we're almost out of time. I'm curious, to, how do you feel about the expungement laws? 
Well, I think that there's some concerns about those, too, and, and they, they slowed that down because they finally realized that people that were convicted of sex crimes could uh, turn around and go work in a daycare or go work in a school, and uh, the school wouldn't know that uh, they've been convicted sex offenders. Banks don't know about embezzlements, about frauds, whatever, when they're trying to hire tellers and things like that. And so there's sort of been this rush to clear everybody's record without having the full implications or full understanding of, of what impact wiping somebody's record clean is. I think it really is a case-by-case basis. I think Pete hit it on the head. That, I mean, some of the cases right now, if you're 16 or 17, you have your choice. The prosecutor can decide whether you go to juvenile court or or adult court, that's the way it's always been through the years. 18 and up, you were adults automatically. And I think, you know, most newspapers and TV, radio newspapers aren't interested in reporting on somebody throwing a beer bottle through a window. Mm-hmm. Mike, you raise a lot of important issues, and uh, this is yet another topic that I think a lot of people have different opinions on, and it'd be great to explore this even further because it really is a balancing act of different rights that uh, might be somewhat in conflict with each other. But Mike Donahue, head of the Vermont Press Association, many thanks for your phone call today. And just a reminder that the legislature's veto session will begin next Wednesday, June 23rd, and run for at least two days. It looks like most of the votes on the veto overrides will take place on Thursday, the 24th. So we'll be covering that closely uh, next week. Many thanks to our great reporters today, Xander Landon of VT Digger. Xander, thanks very much for being on the program today. Thanks for having me. And VPR's Pete Hirschfeld. Pete, great to have you here, and even better to have you in the same studio. Good to be here with you, Bob. <laughs>